So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. So we've started our series over the Ten Commandments, and we've not spent a lot of time up to this point, now this is week four, actually looking at the Ten Commandments themselves. Um, We've laid a little bit of groundwork to get to this point. And so the first week, just to recap, we looked at how God had worked up to this point in, in history, from Genesis up to Exodus 19, uh, in creating the world and covenanting with Abraham, and we'll talk about covenant in a minute, uh, and, and making a promise to Abraham and then staying faithful to the promise, his descendants making their way to Egypt through Joseph, and, and then generations being put into slavery because the people in Egypt were afraid of Um, were afraid of the Israelites. So they found themselves in slavery. They were crying out to God. God pulled a rescuer literally from the water, uh, a river in Egypt, raised him up in Pharaoh's house. He came away. God called him to go back and rescue the people of Israel from slavery. Uh, So he used Moses to pull a whole nation out of another nation to go into the wilderness to worship God there, and he became their God. He always was God over all things. He became their God. He rescued a particular people out of Egypt and provided for them and worked among them. He not only brought them out, but when that nation, Egypt, came after them, he defeated the armies of Egypt. He kept the people safe. He supernaturally provided food and water for them along the way to sustain their life in the wilderness. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves in Exodus 20. And then the couple of weeks before that, uh, last week and the week before, we looked at the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told. And so we jump to the New Testament so we can get a little bit of perspective since that's the side that we look at the Ten Commandments from. And said... Through this prodigal son, as he left his family and left his father and brought shame on the family, which I don't have time to go into, squandered what he had in reckless living, is what it says. He comes back to the father, and the father does not say, okay, you owe us about five years of indentured servitude to get back to the point where you were, and then we'll talk about you being a son again. Or we'll make you a son, but make you a son on a probationary basis. So that if you mess up in the next three or four years, then we'll take that sonship back away from you. No, the son came back dirty and filthy, broke and broken with nothing. And the father met him in his brokenness, met him in his shame, took that on for himself as the father and said, welcome home. He put the coat of honor of the family on him. He gave him the ring, which gave him power to make and transact deals in the family's name, and he gave him shoes to wear. He extended grace to the son without any condition whatsoever. There was no, I'll show you grace if, or we'll trust you if you prove yourself. There was, welcome home, 
my son. And it is a picture of the way that when we trust Jesus, meaning I trust that you can do what I cannot do, that there's nothing that I can do to earn my way back into relationship and back into the household, and I trust that you are good and that you are loving, and the only way for me to get back is for you to overlook everything that I've done and bring me back in yourself. And that is what the Father, God the Father, does to us and makes a way to do for us through Jesus, that he lived perfect, he laid down his life, he resurrected from the dead so that God could look at our sins and say, you get grace because you have trusted my son. And so when we look back at the Ten Commandments, we do not look at them like the older brother who said, don't you know I've been here the whole time and you've never thrown a celebration for me. You've never given me the robe. You've never given me the ring of honor. You've never... He said, don't, Father, I've earned it. I've earned your affection. I've earned your love. I've earned the place of honor. And he says... Everything that I've had has been yours all along. The older son thought that by keeping all of the rules and by doing the right thing, he was earning a place before the father that the father was willing to give him anyway. He was trying to do it on his own. So it is a a story that Jesus is telling that speaks to us when we look at the Ten Commandments. They are not rules that we keep to earn God's favor. They're not rules that we keep, so we go, God, don't you see what I've done? Now you hold up your end of the bargain and bless me, or or whatever. We keep God's commandments and we walk according to his law because of how good he is. Because we've trusted Jesus and we know that we cannot do anything to earn our way back into right relationship with God, Jesus did that for us, and we see the grace given to us. We see the love of the Father without condition on us, and we say, how do I live up to that? And we respond by walking according to his commandments, and that is why the Ten Commandments were given to us for our good and God's glory. They impart to us freedom and joy. They let us live in abundance with parameters in freedom. You said that doesn't sound like freedom. You said there's just parameters. Yeah, yes. But those parameters are to keep us in the joy and freedom because outside of that is slavery and chain and death and destruction. I don't have time to explain that for you. They are not a means of earning God's favor and cannot make us good simply by keeping the rules. They will lead not a society to be moral if they are kept on their own. And we'll see that clearly this morning. But, but, when the Ten Commandments are pursued under cross-purchase, Jesus on the cross laying down his life, blood-bought, the shedding of his blood for our sake, freedom, they are pillars in a life of worship. The Ten Commandments are pillars in a life of lived in worship. So as we get into it this morning, I'm reminded back at the turn of the 19th century, so late 1800s, there was a game that was invented by a man named James Naismith. Basketball. Invented in Springfield, Massachusetts in a YMCA building. 
And I looked up some pictures of this, and it doesn't look anything like Holdenville High School Gymnasium, or I've not seen Moss's Gymnasium inside, but I assume it's nothing like that either. Uh, it, it looks to me like a big workout room at somebody's house, like big, I mean like mansion type workout room at somebody's house. I mean, it has a balcony around it, and so when he invented this game, he was uh, in charge of providing recreation for college-age men. And all the games they had didn't really keep their intention, so he came up with this game, and he took two peach baskets, and he mounted them on the balcony. It'd almost be like mounting them right up here, one on this side and one on that side, right? And he gave them a ball uh, that resembled a soccer ball at that time. And so he, he put together kind of soccer and rugby and some, some new things, right? The, the goals themselves originally did not have holes in the bottom. So if you, your team made a goal in the peach basket that was hanging up here, there was somebody on this side and somebody on this side up in the balcony that would reach over, retrieve the ball out, and throw it back down. In, in many of those regards, there were 13 original rules. I, I don't believe originally there was dribbling, but you couldn't travel with the ball, so you had to pass the ball. When you caught it, you got maybe a grace step, but, but that was it, and you had to pass it. Of course, you make the basket, there was no fouls, and there was a referee charged with keeping order because they soon found out they were used to rugby, and tackling and wrestling became a, a regular occurrence, so we had to remedy that. Okay, but there was no foul line. There was certainly no three-point line. There was no five seconds in the lane violations because there were no lanes painted. There wasn't a court specifically made for basketball. But it had the structure and it had the rules originally. And that original game progressed to what we know now. I don't know how many rules there are now, but there's more than 13. You dribble the ball. Of course, there are structures and theories in place, philosophies of approach to the game. I, I watched The Last Dance recently and learned about triangle offense and Phil Jackson's affinity with the triangle offense. And that was developed because the game has progressed. Now, what we know of the game of basketball today is different than the original game. But it, it is not a different game. Are you, are you with the structures? The original structures are in place. Why do I bring that up? When we get to Exodus chapter 20 and we see God lay out the Ten Commandments and the law, God laying out law for his people is nothing new. From the very beginning of creation, there has been law given by God for humans to follow. In the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, he said, Be fruitful and multiply. That's instruction. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the earth. Oversee the animals. Enjoy everything that I have created. And do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the original law. Those four basic instructions. And they were given to Adam and Eve prior to sin coming into the world. They were given to Adam and Eve as a way for them to maintain godliness being like god reflecting god's character to the world around them that law progressed over time and now we have the ten commandments and there are more underneath the ten commandments but the aim is the same 
These are the boundaries that are given to us to live godliness out, to show God's character and work before us in the same way that the game of basketball has developed. So with that in mind, let's look at Exodus starting in chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, or you shall have no other gods in my presence, or even you shall have no other gods before my face. The, when I change up that wording slightly, it is possible translations from the original Hebrew to English, okay? And it communicates, this is very important for where we go. Because in, in my mind, I think so long, and I don't know if you're with me in this, the idea of you shall have no other gods before me, meaning, wrongfully so, here's God, Yahweh, at the top, and our job to fulfill the first commandment is just that other gods don't get up above him so that he remains the highest, right? No other gods before me, no other gods over me. That's not what this is saying. He's saying you shall have no other gods before my face. M meaning there's not other gods, but they just don't measure up to me. There's none other. You are to have none other gods, no other gods, period, end of story. No other gods in my presence, and the presence of God is everywhere. So, we see in this, at the outset of the Ten Commandments, that God is for God. Anything less than chasing God's glory is treasonous. First major thing I need you to know, we cannot and must not divorce the law of God from God himself. We cannot divorce the law of God from God himself. We cannot separate God and his character from the law that he gives. And this is vitally important. This is where we get off into legalism, into I can earn God's favor by keeping the rules. I can be good by keeping the rules. That is divorcing God's law from God himself. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the serpent. Okay, so think back to what I just said earlier. The God's instruction to Adam and Eve were, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, enjoy everything that I've given you, and don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan comes into the picture. He tempts Adam and Eve. Why? He says, well, did God really tell you this? Did, did God really say, don't eat of any don't touch it the fruit well and, and he said do you think god will really kill you if you do so do you think death is really yours is god in other words god is faithful he says what is true and then he acts on what he says so in that moment satan's saying do you think god really will keep his word do you think god really told you the truth and will stand by it Will he actually do what he said? He's calling into question God's character, his faithfulness. 
Is God really good? He's actually holding out on you because he knows if you eat that fruit, you will be like him. And he wants to keep you from being like him. And so he told you don't eat of it so that you would stay the way that you are and not be like him. He's calling into question God's goodness and generosity. God is good and he is generous. And when he says, no, he's keeping you from something, he's separating God's character from the the law that God gave and you cannot do that. The law reflects the character, God's character. We cannot separate the character. These are not arbitrary rules. God didn't just say, okay, let me get the best ten things that I could think of to have these people follow. Okay, let's see. Well, I'll tell them not to worship any other gods. That'll probably do, do good. I'll tell them not to make any idols because that would probably work out well. I mean, he didn't think of arbitrary things that he could put and say, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three. As if I were to say, okay, now when you leave, okay, the first step that you take should be with your right foot, okay? Then lead with your left, and then right, and then left, right? Follow that rule. Every time you leave church, lead with your right foot first. That's an arbitrary rule. Why? Why? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't do any, that's not this especially in the first commandment, it reflects God's character. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? God is speaking individually to the Israelites. This is the first time in the history of the Israelites that God is speaking directly to all of them. Okay? In the past, God has spoken to Moses and said, you tell the people what I say. Right? He spoke to Moses. Moses relays the message on. All of the whole nation, hundreds of thousands of people are standing at the base of this mountain and listening to the voice of God speaking to all of them. Why? So there's no question where this is coming from. So all of them hear the same thing, so they all know this is the voice of God, and he leads with the most important thing, I am Yahweh, your God. I'm not the God of the river. I'm not the God of fertility. I'm not the God of plentiful crops. I am Yahweh, your God. I have a name, and I am personally your God. Don't mistake me for anyone else. Okay, that's who I am that's saying this. I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is me. This is a mirror into who God is. The very first thing before he ever gives a command is you need to know who I am. This morning, guys, we need to know who God is. We, I don't, I don't know if you're like me in this. If you're out at a restaurant and you're having a conversation at a table and there's people around you, there's a waitress, there's other people, I don't feel uncomfortable having a conversation about God. Like, God in our culture is an acceptable reality, and a lot of people have conversations about God. God God is not taboo to talk about, right? I mean, you've got Buddhists, Mormons, Hindus, Catholic, Christian, uh, I, I mean, there's, we can name a whole bunch of others, right? And, and each 
area, maybe with the exception of Hindu and Buddhist, has, has God, okay? And in those cases, multiple gods, right? God is, is not controversial most of the time, unless you get somebody who's an atheist. And then we're still talking about God, just that he doesn't exist, which is kind of strange, because I have shoes on my feet, and those shoes exist, but even if I say they don't exist, I'm still talking about the shoes on my feet. Anyway, that's another argument. Um, God is not taboo until you start giving him a name. Yahweh God. Because Yahweh God is not the same as cow God. Hindus worship cows. They are sacred beings, right? That's different. Or a statue of Buddha or, or whatever other god that they might have. That, that's different, right? That's not Yahweh God, right? And so now if we start drawing lines and give God a name, now we may have an issue, right? It may get a little more uncomfortable, Yahweh God is specific. There's only one Yahweh God. And we have to know who he is and what he is like before we get all the rest of the commandments. That's where he starts. Know who I am. When you and I think about God's law and we aim to walk in it, we must keep our mind on God himself. We must be reminded that he is generous, that he is kind, that he is loving, that he is just. And anything else, continuously remembering his character will keep our purpose on God's law in perspective. That we're not trying to earn his favor. We've already been given his favor as he's shown us grace through Jesus because he is gracious. We're not trying to earn his favor because he's already given us love through Jesus, so we walk in the commandments. Not to gain love, but he's already given it to us. It's who he is. We're not trying to satisfy his justice because his justice has already been satisfied in Jesus. Justice is part of who God is. And you cannot separate God's character from any one of those things. It's defined by who God is. We cannot divorce God's law from God himself because they are tied together. We not only keep the law connected to God's character, not only who God is, but what God has done, we obey the law as a proper response to God's works. We obey the law as a proper response to God's work. So he says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the one who rescued you. This is who I am and this is what I've done. And when he said, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, there's much more that comes with that understanding than just you rescued me out of slavery, right? And they know he's the God who has created all things. The God who promised Abraham that he would rescue them and bring them to the promised land. This is part of fulfilling the promise to Abraham hundreds of years ago and bringing them to the promised land. They couldn't get to the promised land while they were in Egypt in slavery. So God's brought them out. He's worked. He's, along the way, he's provided for them supernaturally. What do you feed hundreds of thousands of people in the desert 
that have no trailers to pull, no wagons to hitch to. They're not carrying supplies of food along with them. Day by day by day, God shows up and supernaturally, out of, literally out of thin air, provides food for them. Out of rocks, providing water. This is not a small feat. God is doing this continuously. After he rescued them out of Egypt, the whole nation, the, the largest empire of the world at that time, the Egyptian empire, but this is not a small thing for this slave people to defeat the reigning empire of the time. But God did it on their behalf, brings them out. They find themselves in the desert, confronted by the army. They are armed, but they've got an army of chariots and horsemen and the empire of the time coming after them. They have nowhere to go. They're boxed in by the sea. Where do they go? What do they do? They could try to fight but they're not going to win. These are trained military men with better equipment than they have. What's going to happen? God, you brought us out of here just to let us die in the wilderness? No. He parts the Red Sea, and they walk across the sea on dry land, and then the army follows, and God brings the sea back in and demolishes the army in one foul swoop. Right? He rescued them. He protected them. He provided for them. This is the work that he's done, and it cannot be overlooked when it comes to keeping God's laws. God worked first. We've got to get that order and keep that order in mind when it comes to us. God has worked first. We don't work so that we get from God. God has provided Jesus for us by faith in him, given us grace, shown us love, and then we respond by walking in his ways. By keeping the law. God worked first, and the law is a response to the way that God works. So we see, he declares, this is who I am. Remember what I've done. And then, I need you to follow these things. This is a covenant. Okay? Covenant we don't use very often in our day and age. So I got to thinking, how can we wrap our minds around covenant? Like, they understood the format of these things, and they recognized what it was. Covenant. The, the closest that we can come in covenant is marriage. In, in, in every day, the way that we understand it, right? It is a chosen relationship, and I'm stealing this definition from somebody else. A chosen relationship entered in and agreed upon and committed to by two parties. Okay, so man and wife. The, the traditional standard wedding vows, and I'm going to mess this up since I'm right in front of you and I'm not looking at words. I know this. I've heard it a hundred times, just like you have. Um, but with all of your eyes on me, it's probably not going to come the way it's supposed to. Right? To have and to hold, for better or worse, till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. Right? To have, for better or worse. If, if life gets better from here on out, or if it gets worse, guess what? We're in it. Right? It's not, okay, we're going to stay in it as long as life gets better, but if it gets worse, we're out. It's for better or worse, for richer or poorer, Right? If, we, 
If we lose everything that we have, we're out. No. If you gain everything, we're in it. If we lose everything, we're in it. For richer or poor, in sickness and in health, right? There are authors that have made a fortune on this sort of thing, right? Guy and girl get married, girl, and I, I don't, gosh, I probably shouldn't anyway. Because this, it's reality. It's, it's, it's a book because it's reality, right? Girl comes down with cancer, and, and the story is captivating because guy hangs in there and walks through, even shortly after marriage, the process of cancer up until the death of the girl. There's true love right up until the end. And that's, I, I hesitate on that because that's not me making light of that. And I know that that's lived out in real life. But it's, it's that picture of for better or worse in sickness and in health till death do us part. We're in this regardless. They didn't bargain for that at the beginning. But you walk into that and it hits you square in the face. And listen, this is what we, we covenanted into. And we're both here until this thing plays out to the end. Covenant. Not conditional. We're in it to win it until it's done. That's what's happening in this case with God. Here's what I've done. And I'm going to be your God. I am your God. I will remain your God. I have rescued you. Now I'm calling you into this relationship with me to walk in my ways. And that is Israel's side. That is God's people's side. That is if you have placed your faith in Christ and you are part of God's chosen people. You are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, God's chosen people for his own possession. Your part of that is to walk out the covenant, is to keep walking in God's ways. And it's not God saying, okay, now if you do this, I'll keep up my end of the bargain. As long as you stay good, I'll stay faithful. That's not it. Because time after time from this point forward, the Israelites were unfaithful to the max in the covenant, and God remained faithful. You and I still today when we are unfaithful in following after, that does not negate or set aside God's faithfulness. God remains faithful through it all. We obey the law as a proper response to God's work. This is a covenant relationship, and God will uphold his end of the bargain, and our end is to follow after him and be like him. So we obey God's laws because of who he is and because of what he's done. And because of that, above all else, first and foremost, by the way, your bulletin should be corrected. The title of today is First and Foremost, if you want to pencil that in. First and foremost, above all else, we recognize and guard God's rightful place of worship. We recognize and guard God's rightful place of worship. And that's what he's saying. You shall have no other gods besides me. I am the only one. I am Yahweh, your God. I am your God. There's no other gods but Yahweh, your God. 
Don't take any other gods. You are making a covenant. And that's why that covenant of marriage is so powerful to see even at, particularly in this instance. When the Israelites covenant with God, and God is their God and they are his people, he's saying you don't run off and make any agreements or any covenants with anybody else. You're faithful to me and me alone, just like the covenant of marriage. When you stay faithful to the covenant of marriage, you don't run off and covenant with anybody else. For richer or poor, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. God's saying, you don't run around on me. And that's, that's why some of the prophecies were where the Israelites do run around and they go after other gods and they worship other gods and they take up idols, where this is out of Scripture, I'm not interjecting these words on my own, he says, you're whoring after other gods to his people. You're negating my commandments. Again, those are biblical words, not James's words. Because I've called you first and foremost above all things to be faithful to me and not have somebody on the side. That's not how we do this. God said, we recognize and guard God's rightful place of worship. Our devotion, our allegiance, our praise, our trust is in no one or nothing else. It is only God. Not only is this his express command to us, okay? When Jesus is asked, okay, Jesus. So these were experts on the law, right? Asking Jesus a question, trying to trip him up. They knew the law inside and out, 10 commandments and more, okay? Inside and out, okay, Jesus, you're so smart. What's the greatest commandment? See if you can answer that. Okay, Jesus, what is it? Which one is the greatest? The law was given by God, and it's about God, and it's for God, so how are you going to pick one commandment over the rest? And Jesus said, that's easy. I know what the greatest commandment is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's what this is. You don't give parts and pieces of yourself after anyone else. Your devotion and your allegiance is to me, your trust is in me and me alone. You don't go anywhere else. And guess what? That's not a restriction to give us, like to confine us and imprison us. It's helpful boundaries to give us freedom in life. Because guess what? If you or I chase after anything else and give our trust in anything else to bring us joy and to bring us satisfaction and to bring us fulfillment in life. I, I found this for myself. I, I imagine you have too. It lacks. It doesn't deliver its promise. What says will satisfy doesn't satisfy. And it keeps you wanting more of the same or wanting more than that and you've got to chase something else and then chase something else and then chase something else and guess what you can climb your all the way to the top and realize i still feel like i'm lacking something i still don't feel satisfied i still don't feel fulfilled 
Because God is the only place that we run to for that. He's the only one that's satisfied. And that's boundaries so that we don't have to experience that for ourselves. That if we would be devoted to finding our satisfaction and fulfillment in Him and Him alone, we don't have to spend time chasing those other things and then coming up empty and disappointed. He's trying to save us from that disappointment. He's trying to save us from that heartache by keeping us in His realm, His range, His whatever. It's for our good and His glory that we stay right there. He's good. He's loving. He's just. He's kind. That's where we need to be. You shall have no other gods before me. So let's circle back to the beginning where I say these ten commandments cannot make a society moral. Try keeping the rest of the commandments with neglecting number one. Or or try throwing number one out because we don't worship Yahweh God. We worship Buddha God or whatever other God. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. If you do not worship Yahweh God, and in our case we worship God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, Forget about the rest of the commandments. It's not doing you any good. You cannot keep them. This is first and foremost. And if we think we want to throw this one out and keep the other nine, Jesus has already told us. What's the greatest? What's the most important? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Everything that you've got is devoted to Him. So post them up on the courtroom walls. Put them on a monument outside. They are not bad. They are given by God and are sacred words, yes. But you try to tell somebody who is God of their own life to live up to the Ten Commandments, and you're setting them up for failure. They can't do it. They, they can't. And if not number one, then number two, and number three, and number four. Without Yahweh God being Lord of all and center of your universe, all the rest of them are null and void. That is our aim. This is why our mission is glorifying God as disciples of Jesus Christ, making disciples of Jesus everywhere. Because God is first and foremost above all worship of Him is our first aim in everything else that we do. So let me ask you this, and we'll hit this next week too. In your life, have you given yourself to, in part, temporarily, in whole, long term, one way or another, another God besides Yahweh? Maybe the God of public approval? The God of social acceptance? That at any expense, I'll do whatever I have to do so that everybody else says, I approve. 
or you've chased after stuff because you think that if I just get more and achieve higher, if I have more toys and more trinkets, which moth and rust destroy, which thieves break in and steal, and we know that uh, in our world, if I get more stuff, I'll be more satisfied. That's the God of stuff. It's the God of money. It's the God of possessions. Have you, in part or in whole, temporarily or long-term, given yourself over to or gone after and chased after other gods besides Yahweh? Or even by seeking to keep all of the rules on my own God? I can get myself there if I just live up to the standard. You are God in and to yourself. Thou shalt have, you shall have no other gods before me. And if that's been the case in your life, you need repentance. You need to turn from that and recognize God as the sole source of joy and satisfaction and provision in your life for all time. First and foremost, God is Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, you are God because it is who you are. There's no escaping it, and any attempt to deny it is attempting to deny reality. Ignoring it, acting otherwise, is acting against reality because everything that we have has come from you. Our very life that we possess, and by going after and chasing after and seeking after anyone else but you and you alone, God, we're cutting the cord to the very thing that gives us life. And so if we could see life in our world in terms of everything that comes from you, there would be strings attached to everything that exists around us, leading back to you as its source. God, and when and where we fail to acknowledge you and worship you and be devoted to you and offer our allegiance to you is aiming to cut those strings. God, may it not be so. May we recognize that we live in a world that seeks to push us after any number of things. whether it's physical pleasure or the fulfillment of stuff or achievement or whatever else. God, may we recognize that all of those things are not only distractions from you, but that they are treasonous endeavors to pursue so God, may we be people that worship you through faith in Jesus, the new life that you've given us in Christ, the rescue that you have brought us in Jesus. May we stand in that and live in that and where we don't and where we haven't, God, bring that to our recognition and call us out of that for the sake of your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name.